celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrity Hello sleepyheads, and welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. On this audio program, we invite our guests to step out of the limelight and step into the nightlight. On this show, for one bedtime, we don't want them to bring their A-game, but rather their Z-game. It's a podcast where you can sleep, you can simply relax, you can take a break from stress and intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with Rebecca Shaw and Ben Cronengold. They're going to talk with me about ranking White House pets. But before all that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Wonderful is an enthusiast podcast hosted by Rachel and Griffin McElroy. Rachel and Griffin McElroy are married, and on the show they talk about things they like, things that are good. In short, it's a podcast about things that are, well, wonderful. If you want feel-good vibes, Rachel and Griffin have you covered. In a somewhat recent episode, they talked about music made for kids that adults could tolerate. I wish this program or others like it had existed when my kids were younger or when I was younger. I wish podcasts were more of a thing back then. If I could travel back in time, well, no, that would be impossible. If you are a parent to young kids now, go ahead and check out the wonderful episode entitled we Should Freeze Tennis Balls. Apparently, Danny Go, with an exclamation point, and Cuckoo Kangaroo are both grown-up friendly bands that play music for kids. So go ahead and give Wonderful a try, if you're not already a subscriber. It's available on Maximum Fun, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let me introduce my guests, Rebecca Shaw and Ben Cronengold. Inexplicably, Rebecca and Ben are romantic as well as professional partners. They have a famously on-again, off-again relationship, and in 2018 had an extremely awkward, ill-timed breakup in front of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the entire graduating class of Yale University while on stage. Even though this messy breakup occurred on stage and on camera, I'm convinced it was not at all staged because it brought up some painful memories of my own. Their relationship has obviously survived because they're sleeping with us tonight and because they have a book coming out that they wrote together called Naked in the Rideshare. Stories of Gross Miscalculations. They were both writers on The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon, and are currently working on shows and films 
for FX, Peacock, and Amazon that they can't talk about. <laughs> Rebecca and Ben, welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. Thank you so much for having us, John. We haven't slept with other people in days, at least. Weeks for me. It's about time. I like to start off these conversations with a question or two about sleep. Do you recall the best night of sleep you've ever had, either separately or together? Ben, you had a particularly bad night of sleep recently, didn't you? <laughs> well, as John alluded to, we got engaged um, just a few days ago. And some engagements nowadays are uh, surprises in quotes, which is to say everyone knows the minute it's going to happen. Everyone knows the dress they're going to wear, the suit they're going to wear. In uh, our case, even though we've been together for nine years, I managed to genuinely surprise Rebecca. And the night before, I was up until seven in the morning, tossing and turning and so nervous about what this was going to look like and what was I going to say when I got down on one knee. Um, and I turned to my absolute favorite show, Big Mouth, starring um, and created by Nick Kroll. And the show means so much to me and Rebecca. Nick is a dear, dear person in our lives. And Rebecca turned to me and she said, will you cut it with the fucking big mouth? It's seven in the morning. Uh, little <laughs> did she know I was just planning on doing something special for her and, and pretty nervous about it. Yeah, and I think it's important to really just set the bar low for what a life with me is like. <laughs> you know, from here on out, it's only gonna be a positive surprise, I hope. I see, I see. So that's a night that then, Ben, you did not even sleep at all. Not a wink, but the next night was probably the best sleep of my life. Rebecca said, mm. yes, it went off without a hitch. And I said to her, I'm never planning anything without you again. And that was, <laughs> that lulled me into a, a real nice dreamless sleep for the, the following night. How about you, Rebecca? I feel like you're a good sleeper. I am a good sleeper. It's, it's one of my passions. Um, it takes me a while to get there. I'm I, I fall asleep very late, but I can just sleep until the middle of the day if I'm allowed to. And one of the best things about having your creative partner also be your life partner is that I am often allowed to. So we say we keep uh, California time, but what that really means is we just sleep until noon because nobody ever calls us before then. So mm -hmm. We're in New York for context. But yes. John, one thing that might be interesting to you as a sleep aficionado yourself is Rebecca comes from a long line of nocturnal people. Oh, that is true. tell me about those people. Um, my father is fully nocturnal. He wakes up every day around 5 or 6 p.m. Um, it actually lent itself really amazingly to a family dynamic because we had dinner together as a family every night. He, when we were young, would put us to bed and then he would start his day and my mom would end it. Um, and I'm increasingly oh. convinced this is the secret to a happy marriage because they get like three to four great <laughs> hours together every day. Um, but yeah, it's, it runs in my family. Almost everyone, as they get older, trends later and later. Um, so in terms of setting the bar low, I'm just, I'm excited to see, you know, I, my goal is to never see sunlight again. <laughs> is there in your family lineage any of your grandfathers or grandmothers or great-great-grandfathers or great-great-grandmothers a bat? You know, I haven't asked, but um, they're very scaly. They're a scaly people, mm. so it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me. It could be. <laughs> I've, been I've been informed by our production team that uh, this interview is not allowed to proceed until 
Ben tells us how he proposed to Rebecca. Mm, mm. That is fair. You know what? It was intimate. It was private. It was just in our apartment. We came back from a nice long walk. And I had two awesome friends who I owe so much to set up the apartment with gorgeous flowers and a hundred candles. It was a fire hazard that I was nervous about for weeks ahead of time. And I walked in and I just popped the question. I figured a lot of our life is, is public and trending public, which is a lucky thing. But I did want something that was a little bit private for us. And anyway, I'll send you the video. It will be on TikTok starting at 2 p.m. <laughs> I see. Congratulations. Were your friends New York City firefighters? Correct. They got in via ladder. Did they wear the big hats? They did. Yeah. Just two friends with really great taste and a nice time commitment to, to me and Rebecca. We're really grateful. How was it, Rebecca, from, from your perspective? 10 out of 10 would do again. <laughs> nice. Well, hopefully it won't come to that. Let's talk about White House pets. Why are you so interested, first of all, before we begin our, our ranking and our list, um, why the interest in White House pets? You know, I think Ben and I have always found ourselves really attracted to niche moments in American history. We've always been really charmed by them. Our first feature film that we ever wrote together was about the father of the American political cartoon. Mm -hmm. um, it was heralded by many as unproducible, uh, which was very <laughs> exciting. Um, but no, I mean, our dream of dreams is to write a movie about Ralph Nader and the seatbelt. I think we've always found mm. those niche corners of, of history really fun. But, you know, we thought we'd do something topical. And in the wake of Major Biden, it feels like all anyone can talk about, I think, is the White House pets. I think that's sort of all everyone is talking about. <laughs> is Major the bitey one or is Commander the bitey one? It's a great question. The answer is, of course, both. But I do think, to John's point, Commander might be the one that's making recent headlines. No, in fact, that is Major. Um, I'm excited to talk about it in depth later, but Major <laughs> has had two separate news cycles about biting, but the second one specifically is more of a an expose, if you will, because it turns out that there's been a lot of biting going on behind the scenes for quite some time, but I think people are finally ready to come out and talk about it. As we talk about these White House pets, let's set the stage a little bit. How far back in history are we going with this list? Oh, we're going as far back as possible. There are brief periods of time where the White House served as something of a, a zoo. Um, when we think about presidents like Teddy Roosevelt, Calvin Coolidge, strangely. So we're going to be popping around history and giving out some, you can almost think of them as awards or nominations for some of the, the most standout pets that the um, presidency has seen. Well, let's get started. And just for housekeeping purposes, how many pets are on this list? Oh, God, there are so many pets. There are as many pets as it takes for people to fall asleep. So please feel free to cut us off at any point. All right. Well, let's get started. Who's, who's first on our list? Well, first of all, just by way of overview, almost every U.S. president has had pets. There are only three, in fact, who haven't. James Polk, Andrew Johnson, and Donald Trump. But Johnson, it is important to note, although he didn't officially have pets, he did take care of some mice that he found in his bedroom at one point, which is maybe one of the saddest things I've ever heard. Take care of them like smash them with a hammer? <laughs> <laughs> it's so much sadder. He sprinkled flour on the ground. It was during his impeachment trials, and he would just sit there and watch the mice eat the flour that he left out. 
the Johnson mice. That I think that counts as pets. Mm-hmm. The way that we're going to get started, though, our first category to walk you through, just a little introduction to this fascinating world. We're calling it the best names category. All right. There are a lot of creative names throughout the years. Rebecca and I have our own opinions, but I'm going to throw one out there for you guys just to get things started. Lyndon B. Johnson's Beagles named him, her, and Freckles. And him, we'll get back to this, but had a pretty devastating end. But I do like the idea of Lyndon B. Johnson walking around the White House saying, get him and get her. And it just meaning the most important staffers, his Beagles. Him, Her, and Freckles by Lyndon Johnson. We've Mm -hmm. covered both Johnsons already in this list. That's right. I'd like to first jump in and just say that I've made a huge and grievous error. I have slandered the good name of Major Biden, who I have just Googled and realized it is, in fact, Commander Biden, who was (laughs) the biter. So my apologies to Major Biden. I will be sending a formal uh, memo as well about this. I think, Rebecca, the tragic confusion is that Major Biden was also ousted from the White House for two biting incidents. He is on a farm somewhere. Where you can never visit him. Correct. Uh, And Commander Biden is following in Major's footsteps, the footsteps of his brethren. So not, not wrong. In fact, sadly, also correct. All right. In the meantime, one of my personal favorite uh, animal names has been George Washington himself, our first president and one of our first presidential pets. He was given a donkey from King Charles III of Spain, and ever the creative, George Washington named his royal gift, Royal Gift. (laughs) A donkey named Royal Gift. A donkey named Royal Gift. Just a a fittingly graceful name for a graceful, graceful ass. (laughs) I'll I'll top that. I'll raise you with John Adams' dog, Satan. Satan? Satan. S-A-T-A-N. S-A-T-A-N. In some cultures called Beelzebub. In ours, (laughs) Satan. And Theodore Roosevelt's snake, you guessed it. I don't even have to say it. We all know, right? Emily Spinach. <laughs> One of my favorite facts about Emily Spinach, the snake, is that she was named by, well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't gender Emily Spinach. I actually don't know the gender of Emily Spinach, but Alice Roosevelt uh, named them Emily Spinach because they were as green as spinach and as thin as my aunt Emily. Yes. Emily Spinach, the snake. Those are some good names. They are. Then we have, I'll close out, at least with some of my favorite names, the category that is, let's call it wonky names for the political junkies out there. So mm-hmm. Benjamin Harrison had his opossums, which we'll loop back to, of course, named Mr. Reciprocity and Mr. Protection. Not to be outdone, Calvin Coolidge's lion cubs, you heard that right, lion cubs, were named Tax Reduction and Budget Bureau. Catchy. <laughs> Uh, One other that I just want to stick in there because, you know, I'm personally biased. My name is Rebecca, and one of my favorite presidential pets was Calvin Coolidge's raccoon, also named Rebecca. (laughs) My favorite fact about her uh, is that she was actually sent to the White House to be served for the 1926 Thanksgiving dinner. There, there was a historical period in which it wasn't 
as much of a yearly tradition that it was always a Thanksgiving turkey that was served during the meal. Mm -hmm. And in 1913, a man named Horace Vose died. He was the traditional provider of the White House Thanksgiving turkey. And that set off a sort of huge wave of people sending unsolicited animal gifts to the White House to sort of angle to become part of the president's Thanksgiving meal. And someone sent Rebecca the raccoon. What? And Calvin Coolidge decided he did not want to eat raccoon for his dinner. Sure. And he kept her as a companion instead. <laughs> Have you figured out what the deal is with Calvin Coolidge and his freaky pet habits? A quiet guy and a lover mm. of exotic animals, which John brings us really neatly into our next category, the most exotic pets to ever grace the Oval Office. Oh, we're ranking exoticism. Oh, yes. <laughs> John Quincy Adams had an alligator that he kept in the White House bathtub. He also had silkworms, as if to give some sort of Disney-esque companions to the alligator. <laughs> um, Naturally. Then, at risk of entirely throwing you under the bus, I have been walking around our apartment with a secret for the last two days, which was that I was going to blindside you on this podcast and tell you that John Quincy Adams was not, in fact, given an alligator. It's It turns a lie. out it's a lie. It has been debunked. Or specifically, it cannot be proven. The first record of the alligator was in 1888, some 63 years after he was alleged to have kept this alligator. And doing a bit of a deep dive, I found that Wikipedia cites a website called Presidential Pet Museum um, with yes. the fact that John Quincy Adams had an alligator. Uh, but the Presidential Pet Museum says they got their information from Wikipedia. Mm, it's one of those Wikipedia catch-22s. Ben, what do you think of the future of your marriage with Rebecca when she's willing to blindside you about John Quincy Adams' alligator ownership on a respected podcast? That's funny that you ask that. Zoom, where we're conducting this podcast, has a feature where you can direct message someone uh, on the side. And I wrote to Rebecca, divorce, before she even finished that blindside. All right. Well, <laughs> marriage is about compromise, and it's about overcoming some obstacles. And, and mm. I, I have faith that, that you can do this. I've been married for 28 years myself. Wow. wow. And my wife has never blindsided me about alligator ownership, but I like to think we would get past it eventually, and I think you could as well. That's nice to hear, John. This isn't Thank just a sleep so podcast. Much. It is a relationship mediation podcast today. I'm excited to get to the exoticism, however. Tell me about the exotic and most exotic pets owned by presidents. Mm, we're talking about Martin Van Buren's pair of tiger cubs. We're talking Ooh. Teddy Roosevelt, a hyena, in the White House. Ben, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to say uh, with Martin Van Buren, one of my favorite congressional fights that a president <laughs> has ever had. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know where I'm going with this. When Martin Van Buren received the Tiger Cubs from the Sultan of Oman, Congress wanted to make Van Buren send them to a zoo. And Van Buren felt very strongly he'd gotten very attached to the Cubs and he wanted to keep them in the White House. So they ended up going back and forth. They fought with Congress and it ended up being sort of a an oddly specific legal battle. And from what I can tell, it sounds like Congress claimed that the Cubs had been sent while Jackson was still president. So that made them the property of the United States, not of Van Buren. 
And then Van Buren argued that the Cubs had been sent, quote, to the president, which he now was. And unfortunately, Congress won. So the the Tiger Cubs were sent to the zoo. Mm. Do we know if Van Buren cared for the Cubs himself or did an aide have to walk and feed them? Sleepyheads, I have a series of questions to ask you, and I'd like you to answer them honestly, but quietly, in your own head. This is, after all, a sleep podcast. It wouldn't make sense to ask you to talk before bed. All right, here are the questions. Have you ever wanted to know why Saturday mornings are reserved for cartoons? Or how the virtual pet website Neopets fell into the hands of Scientologists? Of course you have, and that is perfectly normal. Well, I'm going to let you in on some true goss. Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries is back, and you can hear new episodes with hosts Austin and Brenda every week on Maximum Fun. That's Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries. Do we know if Van Buren cared for the cubs himself, or did an aide have to walk and feed them? An aide? Yes, that's right. Walked and fed the cubs, but Van Buren milked them himself. That is from the Wikipedia sourcing, petmuseum.org sourcing, as you may have guessed, Wikipedia. Milked them like gave them a bottle? No, John. Oh. (laughs) I want to continue with Teddy Roosevelt, though, because not just a hyena. This is probably the most exciting array of animals to hit the White House. He had a one-legged rooster. He had a flying squirrel. He had not one, not two, double it up at one, five bears. In the White House. In the White House, correct. Ben, may I ask you a question? What do you think are the optimal number of bears to have in the White House? Sure. Two, eat each other alive. Three, Goldilocks, they'll rummage around, get into trouble. Four, we're approaching circus. Five, we're approaching circus plus. I, I think he, he had it right with five. Would you agree? I, I concur. John, I mean, how many bears have you kept in your house at the most? <laughs> at the most, six. And that mm. seemed too many. I have had three children. When you go from two children to three children you go from a man-to-man defense to a zone defense. Mm-hmm. And also, it becomes easier with the third child, which I can imagine might be the same with the fifth bear. Mm. When your spirit breaks and you can no longer handle anything, and then you let the universe descend into chaos and nihilism, it mm-hmm. actually saves a lot of time. And I think mm. that's probably the case with Teddy's bears. Teddy's Teddy's. I do believe the fifth pushed them over the brink and uh, it was madness in a way that none of us can possibly imagine a White House to be in our modern day. (laughs) Right. Five bears. So is Teddy the most exotic president, I guess we can ask? By my calculation, I would think he's up there with Coolidge. How about you, Rebecca? I agree. I believe Teddy Roosevelt had the most pets, for sure. Coolidge, I think, came in a close second. But there's also this sort of subcategory that is 
domestic, like farm animals. Like Woodrow Wilson, I know, had a flock of sheep that was grazing on the White House lawn, which is very whimsical. Mm-hmm. So we there's sort of the the exotic animal category and then also the what I call the honorable mentions pets with jobs category. Mm. And Woodrow Wilson's grazing goats and cows, they really did serve an important purpose. It was World War One, and they were able to send the gardeners who normally looked after the White House lawn off to war to defend our country with the substitution of these grazing animals to keep the lawn clean. So very important historical heroes, if you think about it. It must have been a fascinating HR meeting that was held (laughs) when these gardeners received the news that they had been replaced by sheep and were going off to war. It's a real one-two punch, as they call it in the (laughs) HR community. Exactly. Yeah, that's. uh, I think you better come in and sit down and close the door behind you. And what are these sheep doing in this interview? (laughs) We're going to get to that. We're also talking about an array of opossums over the years. Hoover did, in fact, have a pair of alligators. Alligators were not an uncommon White House pet, even if the first case of it with Adams has been debunked live before our ears and eyes tonight. Um, Coolidge, to loop back to our silent pet lover, had a small antelope named, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Duker. (laughs) I'm curious about these pets with jobs, Rebecca. Anyone else stand out to you? Oh, thank you for asking. One of my other favorite pets with jobs is President Taft, who brought his own cow, Mully Wooly. Mully, I'm sorry, Mully Wally. It feels like it should be Mully Wooly, shouldn't it? Mully Wally to the White House because he loved fresh milk and specifically, I think, his fresh milk. From his cow. It's important once you've gotten attached to a specific cow's milk. Mm. And then he later replaced Mully with Pauline. Mm. I tried to look into this and it really, that seems to be the pretty consistent language was he replaced Mully with Pauline. I don't know if that means Mully passed away. I don't know if that means... Sent to war. (laughs) Sent to war. (laughs) 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 There had been a regiment of sheep and they were all sent home. (laughs) They went on the lamb. Oh, well done. Thank you. Well done. I want to counter some of these useful pets, these pets with jobs, Mm. as you've categorized them, Rebecca, with the White House pets with no jobs. And I'm specifically, (laughs) I don't want to get political, but talking about Nepo pets. Nepo Mm. pets. Yeah. What is a Nepo pet, Ben? It's a great question. Well, I have one question for you guys first. When we think about the Nepo president, who comes to mind? Who might have the most on-the-nose Nepo pet? John Quincy Adams? I'm talking about a little bit more recent. I'm talking about George W. Bush. George W. Bush. My God. So George W. Bush had an English Springer Spaniel named Spot, and he was the offspring of George H. W. Bush's dog, Millie. So Spot was the first an only animal so far to live in the White House under two different administrations. That's yeah, what oh, Chelsea Clinton wow. was aspiring to spot, right. in fact, achieved. Um, that's on it. The <laughs> JFK had a dog named Pushinka, a mixed breed dog that was actually the offspring of the Soviet space dog Strelka. So another celebrity mm-hmm. waltzing into the White House like, like it's their own for the taking. A covert Soviet operative dog. Perhaps. A sleeper agent. 
I was going to say, it's it's you both jest, but in fact, when he got Pushinka, they brought him immediately to Walter Reed Army Medical Center and x-rayed the dog. That's crazy. Let sleeper dogs lie. Ooh. That was worse than <laughs> yours earlier? <laughs> no, it was better. Um, that's actually a perfect transition into one of my favorite lists, which is the most wronged presidential pets. Mm. Um, okay. Immediately topping the list with Major Biden, who, again, I cannot believe I slandered so egregiously. But again, a monster. (laughs) A biter, at least. A biter, at least. You know what he was doing? He was Major Biden. Okay. And now we're all equally guilty. (laughs) We're all going down together. Mutually assured destruction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We needed that. We needed someone to step in. A few of my favorite wronged animals. Well, I I would love to share uh, quickly. I've brought a bit of a multimedia element because my favorite story, probably at all, speaking of George Bush, George Bush had a dog named Ranger Mm. who was very publicly fat shamed. So this is Um, H.W. Bush we're talking about. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. George H.W. Bush. The first Bush. Um, And the first fat, fat, fat dog. Um, (laughs) George H.W. Bush released a memo, an all-points bulletin, uh, from the presidential stationery to everyone in the White House. And I would love to read it out loud if we have the time. Yes, please. Um, Well, the subject, well, first of all, the subject line is, my dog, quote, ranger. Rangers in quotes. And it says, memo, important announcement. This is an all-points bulletin from the president. Hmm. Recently, Ranger was put on a weight reduction program. Either that program succeeds, or we enter Ranger in the Houston fat stock show as a prime Hereford. (laughs) All offices should take a formal pledge, pledges in quotes, that reads as follows. We agree not to feed Ranger. We will not give him biscuits. We will not give him food of any kind. In addition, Ranger's access, also in quotes, is hereby restricted. He has been told not to wander the corridors without an escort. It's key to note that Ranger has been told not to wander the corridors without an expert. He has been told. Mm -hmm. He specifically. Yes. (laughs) Um, He was in with the HR with the sheet. Yes, an HR meeting. Uh, It says, this applies to the East and West Wings, to the residents from the third floor to the very, very bottom basement. Although Ranger will still be permitted to roam at Camp David, the Camp David staff, including the Marines, naval personnel, (laughs) all civilians, and kids, kids is also capitalized, are specifically instructed to, quote, rat on anyone seen feeding Ranger. Ranger has been asked to wear a do not feed me badge in addition to his ID. Hmm. I, I will, of course, report on Ranger's fight against obesity. <laughs> right now, he looks like a blimp. A nice, a nice, friendly, appealing blimp, but a blimp. We need your help. All hands, please help. From the president, George H.W. Bush. P.S. Read my lips. No new biscuits. Um, that is a wronged pet if I've ever heard one that is a wrong yeah I think it's the badge that kind of puts it over the top oh yeah it's mortifying it's shameful 
I think the one important piece of context to remember was that this was a different era. I think people talk about fat shaming a lot more in our current climate than they did at this point. I think mm. there was a lot less generosity given toward body positivity in dogs and especially celebrity dogs. I mean, we just, we all know what a nightmare that can be to have that level of public scrutiny on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, I wish Ranger healing and the best. Mm -hmm. Okay, wronged dogs. So we've talked about dogs with with uh, some jobs, dogs with no jobs, Nepo dogs, mm. funnily named dogs and exotic pets. What other categories do you have for us? So this is my personal favorite. This is, for the history junkies out there, the most influential pets, specifically when it comes to elections. This is not a short mm. list, you guys. Dogs have, dogs in particular, I'd say, have swayed elections. They've ruined campaigns. Anybody remember the Mitt Romney incident? Where he, dog on the top say of with the me car. now, was creepy. Oh yes, the dog on the top of the car. Um, no, of course, that's what I'm talking about. But he's not the only one. So let's start with an example or two of presidential candidates actually rising to the occasion when it came to their pets. So there's a very famous incident called the Checkers speech, where Nixon, this is when he was a vice presidential candidate, uh, actually on Eisenhower's ticket. So before he was a presidential candidate, he was accused of hiding a secret slush fund, which is essentially um, like taking bribes uh, from public officials and whatnot. Um, he had to give a speech. He decided to ha have a televised speech to address this, and it became known as the Checkers speech. Checkers was the name of his dog. Uh, he said famously, there is no slush fund, there are no bribes, but I have to admit, there is one thing that I did get as a gift, and I'm not going to give it back. That gift was Checkers, which was given to his daughter's by a sultan, by a king, by someone trying to exert political power. And even though there had been talk of Nixon being dropped from Eisenhower's ticket after his speech, they actually got a huge spike in support. Yeah, and Mamie Eisenhower, of all people, recommended that he stay on the ticket because he was clearly a good dad and a better doggy daddy. <laughs> good pet owner. Another one that uh, has become sort of a key and hotly debated issue was Lyndon Johnson's dog. Mm. Uh, to revisit him and her, there was a photo shoot in which Lyndon Johnson was captured lifting his beagles by their ears. Mm. Yes. Which by modern standards is probably considered not something that <laughs> you should be doing to your beagles. But at the time it was actually pretty controversial. There was a real push and pull where some animal lovers were furious, but also even former president Harry S. Truman weighed in and said, quote, what the hell are critics complaining about? That's how you handle hounds. Mm. So if anything, mm. that was one that really, he got a lot of blowback, but it also sort of made him read as more folksy. So I guess what I'm saying is we should all be picking up dogs by their ears. I think that's the takeaway we should all be having. Mm -hmm. Not just dogs, kids. Oh, yeah. I think we we may get some letters on that. Did the two of you <laughs> find one another because no one else would indulge your interest in White House pet talk on dates? That is correct. Uh, yes. It was a, they call it furry conventions, um, John. <laughs> <I see. laughs> no, but I do think we, we share a mutual love of these very odd uh, political facts. I also just have to say, I'd be remiss not to add him to our list of most wronged pets. Who's him? Mm. Him. Him the dog. Him. 
Lyndon yes. Johnson's him. Lyndon Johnson's Beagle. Him, for all of the talk of, are we treating him okay? Is it all right to lift beagles by their ears? Was run over by the presidential limo at the end of the day. <sighs> yeah, not a good way to go and sort of put a unfortunate cap on the LBJ menagerie of pets. Mm. Wow. Mm. Him mm. didn't realize that picking up, being picked up by the ears would be the least of his troubles. <laughs> the least yes. of his problems, exactly. Um, I want to throw one more most influential pet out there, and that's the Fala speech from FDR, mm. which I have a feeling you were going to talk about, Rebecca. But I'll just briefly tell you guys that running for his fourth term in 1944, FDR um, was suffering from some rumors that he may have uh, misused federal funds when, after a trip to Alaska, he realized that he left his beloved dog Fala in Alaska. So what did he do? But he spent thousands of taxpayer dollars to go retrieve the dog and send ships back. So again, had to give a speech to address this controversy. FDR said, look, you can criticize me, you can criticize my wife, my family, but you can't criticize my little dog. He's Scottish, he said. And all these allegations about spending all this money have just made his little soul furious. So the speech became known as the Fala speech. And reportedly, do we, think, do we think just to pull the group, this would help his election chances or hurt his election chances? I think it would probably help his election chances. I mm-hmm. would concur. Mm-hmm. It did. People went nuts for the Fala speech. I think there's something about these presidential pets that when push comes to shove, allows these candidates to humanize themselves. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what FDR did. I'm interested in the foreign policy ramifications of the idea that you can't criticize anyone who's Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a bad point. I also thought you were going to say the foreign policy ramifications of turning a boat like that around. Unless I'm mistaken, wasn't the takeaway that this was one of the first examples of fake news against a political candidate. It turned out it wasn't really mm. true at all. And no, the alligator in the bathtub was actually the first uh, instance of fake news. <laughs> <laughs> no, interestingly, the alligator in the bathtub was a president. Uh, yes, okay, right. No, you're absolutely right. that This was sort of a tabloid-esque uh, presidential scandal. It makes sense to fight fire with fire then, to fight silly with silly. Mm-hmm. Speaking of silly, one of my favorite presidential pets that also sort of, this this is almost the opposite. He was not wronged. He was vindicated, Mm. was Jack the Turkey. In 1863, Mm. 10-year-old Tad Lincoln befriended a turkey that was sent to the White House to eat. There is a through line, it seems, of these animals just being (laughs) sent there live to be slaughtered on premises. (laughs) But Tad Lincoln became very close with the turkey. He named him Jack, and he treated him like a pet. And before Christmas, someone (laughs) told uh, Tad that Jack the turkey was going to be killed that day. And Tad burst into the cabinet meeting in tears and publicly begged his father to pardon the turkey. When we talk about the modern day presidential turkey pardon, what a lot of presidents cite as the inspiration for the turkey pardon. Oh, yesterday I was in my house and my dog, Maisie, barked the most unusual bark I had ever heard of her, which sounded Mm. like, if you can imagine the bark version of being baffled, 
that's that's huh? what came out of Maisie. Mm-hmm. And I went to the front yard or the front window to look into the front yard to investigate, thinking it was the Amazon delivery person or the mail sure. carrier. It was eight turkeys walking across my lawn. Wow. Wow. Which we have them here in St. Paul, but not a lot. And certainly I've never seen eight. And I didn't know what to do about it. So I just went outside and watched them silently walk away. I didn't capture them, didn't pardon them. I guess I pardoned them in the sense that I (laughs) left them alone. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a president, but it was a a turkey moment that we can all have, really, I suppose. If, If I'm susceptible to lawn turkeys, then I think anybody is. What an amazing welcome to the Thanksgiving season. (laughs) <laughs> it was it was ominous and and magical and mystical at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that is their equivalent of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? <laughs> I think I think so. I think just the uh, because I think it would be in character for turkeys to get the date of Thanksgiving wrong because they're mm. not very bright. Yes. And just show up a few weeks before walking across my yard. Yeah. It is unfortunate that they were on their way to the Capitol. But besides that, it's a sweet sight. That's true. It's true. Well, St. Paul is the capital of Minnesota. So <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they were up to something. They got confused. <laughs> they got confused. It's so, it's so easy to do. Well, Rebecca Shaw and Ben Cronengold, it's clear we've only scratched the surface on arcane political animals and other political facts. We need to bring you both back to cover more facts and put more people to sleep with your encyclopedic knowledge. Can, can, you, can you commit to that? Can we plan for that? Anytime, any night. We would be delighted. All right. Rebecca Shaw and Ben Cronengold, thank you for sharing information about White House pets and the categorization and taxonomy thereof. And good night. Good night. Good night. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about White House pets as much as I did. You know, something I like to do at the end of my day is make a mental catalog of things that I experienced and or learned. So if you don't mind, I'm going to make a list of takeaways from my conversation with Rebecca and Ben right now while it's fresh in my mind. 1. President Johnson had three beagles named him, her, and Freckles. 2. George Washington received a royal donkey and named him Royal Gift. 3. Ben Cronengold thought John Quincy Adams had a White House alligator that lived in the bathroom, and Ben was wrong. 4. There are enough presidential farm animals to warrant a pets with jobs category of White House pets. 5. Spot was the first dog to live in the White House under two administrations, the Georges Bush. 6. If you want to propose to someone, hundreds of lit candles in an apartment is always a great idea. 7. 
We need to stop fat-shaming presidential dogs, and all dogs for that matter. Okay. Ah, I'm going to turn in myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and Rebecca Shaw and Ben Cronengold. You can follow Sleeping With Celebrities on Twitter and TikTok using the handle at sleepwithcelebs. On Instagram, the handle is at sleepwcelebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. Music is provided by the Winterbowers. This show was senior produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. This is a production of Maximum Fun and Papuchik. I'm John Moe. Night night. Maximum Fun. A worker owned network of artist owned shows. Supported directly by you.